All right, let's open the Word of God together. If you would like to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 19, today we are going to start in verse 38 and look through the rest of the chapter. Here's what the Word of God says. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So read the words of the living God. So have you ever been associated with a group or uh, a certain segment of people who, because you were part of that clan, part of that group, you were judged or condemned uh, unfairly? Uh, we have very minor examples of this in our culture, such as uh, blonde jokes, <laughs> right? My, uh, one of my daughters, well, both of my daughters are blonde. All three of my kids are blonde. And uh, we like to tell blonde jokes now and then, and everybody knows who we're talking about, one of my children in particular. Uh, we have other more uh, serious examples of this. Uh, there's kind of low-hanging fruit right now for us in the political realm. If you want to take any of our congressmen or women, uh, any, anyone from the executive branch, anyone from the judicial branch, and call them out and assume that they are uh, making decisions that you think are foolish. There's a lot of examples. If you are a conservative, it's very easy to look at the liberals and talk about all the crazy things that they are promoting, the things they stand for. If you're a liberal, you can take the conservatives. If you don't like the administration, you can lump the president and his entire cabinet together and the Supreme Court justices. It's easy for us to look at all the politicians and just say they're a bunch of scoundrels they're liars we can't trust them they don't care about anything but themselves on and on and on through some of the cliche views of politicians and they've earned some of that to be sure but what we have to be careful of always is to judge them unfairly individually it is not okay it's it's a fallacy called guilt by association when you take one person out of a class and make a stereotype about the class and take one and say, well, since they belong to that group, they must be just like my stereotype of that class. We do this frequently, but it's wrong. And none of us want it done to any of us. You may recall uh, Elijah, um, kind of felt like he was the only one in his day who wasn't like all the rest of Israel when he said, Lord, I'm the only prophet who hasn't bowed the knee. And God said, oh, no, 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 no. I have many, many prophets who have not served Baal. 
we, we must not assume we're alone and we must not assume that everybody in a group is like all the others in the group. God is always saving a remnant of his people. Well, I will admit to you that uh, before really diving into this passage, there were a couple of things about Joseph of Arimathea that, uh, well, one thing in particular that always kind of bothered me. And the more I've pondered this and compared it to other texts, I realize this was actually a great moment for Joseph of, of Arimathea. What we find here is this man was a member of the Sanhedrin. John doesn't tell us that but uh, the other gospel writers do. And Joseph is mentioned in all four gospels. He's important to this story. And all four of the gospel writers make sure that we know he's the one who asked for Jesus's body. And here's the association that even the, the, the scripture has made thus far. Now, Jesus has repeatedly spoken about the Pharisees and the Jews. John, as he has written, has repeatedly spoken of the Pharisees or the priests or the Jews and put them all in a category of they're opposed to Jesus. They don't believe in Jesus, and especially the Sanhedrin. They are responsible for him going to the cross. And yet here's one of them who all along has been believing in Jesus and now he steps forward to show that he is a disciple. That's what John calls him. Did you catch that? Joseph of Arimathea being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one. Now that's the part that has kind of always bothered me. At what point did he believe that Jesus really was the Messiah? And why didn't he right then and there come out and say, I believe him. Let's follow him. And if you all don't want to do that, fine, I'm going to. The truth is, we don't know. But it should give us a little pause, a little grace to not immediately judge other people who are part of a class that we think uh, the class is doing poor things, making bad decisions, we don't trust them. And we should not judge every member of that group if we don't know where they stand. Joseph is one of those guys. Let me read for you what Luke said about him. It said, And a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, that's the Sanhedrin, a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plan and action. So here Luke had found out that Joseph didn't go along with the pursuit of crucifying Christ. A man of Arimathea, a city of the Jews, and this is what Luke tells us about Joseph. He was waiting for the kingdom of God. So here was a faithful Jew, a member of the council, and when he saw Jesus, watched Jesus do all that he did and heard Jesus talk, he said, I believe that man is the Messiah. And he was a secret disciple until now. Now he comes out in full endorsement of Jesus. He was taking a risk for him to go to Pilate and ask for Jesus' body, was now stepping out in front of the rest of the council and admitting, I follow this man. Uh, if you weren't a member of the council, he would have had access to Pilate anyway. Remember, we talked about this last week. The Jews 
typically left someone on the cross after they had died and left them there so that they would be uh, a, 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 an example to all who walked by. And when they did take them down, they, there was this place called Common Grave. They would go just toss the bodies of those who were crucified for sedition. And sometimes they even threw them in Gehenna, the fire, the ongoing fire where all the trash was burned. Well, the Jews, uh, their law didn't require that or require that that wouldn't happen. And Joseph here wanted to honor Christ and keep the law. And so he used his, his position to go to Pilate and say, can I have the body? And everybody knew it. The rest of the council members would have been aware. Joseph is now claiming his, his allegiance to Christ. And he asks Pilate for the body, and Pilate grants it to him. And so he takes the body of Jesus and places him in, his, in, in a tomb, in a garden, as we were told, uh, where no one else was. So Joseph finally acknowledges his loyalty here to Christ. And then there's another character that we have met before. Nicodemus. This is now the third time that we have seen and heard a little bit from Nicodemus. Uh, the first time, of course, was in John chapter 3. Remember, G there Nicodemus came at night, and John specifically draws attention to the fact that he came at night. We don't know for sure why that is, but probably because he didn't want the rest of the council to know that he was coming to ask Jesus questions because he didn't want them to associate him with Jesus. So he comes to Jesus at night, and he says, uh, we know you're a man of God, you're doing these great things, and Jesus, you recall, confronts him, oh yeah, you think you know stuff? Let me tell you. You can't get into the kingdom of God unless you're born again. You can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. You should know these things. You are a teacher of Israel, and you should know it requires the Holy Spirit's work for you to get into the kingdom of God. And he rebuked him pretty harshly in that, in that setting. Then a little bit later, we have Nicodemus, just a, a short uh, verse or two there, where he challenges the rest of the council a little bit in some of the things they were saying about Jesus. I can't help but wonder if John is not, not setting up a contrast here. Nicodemus came in the dark, but now his loyalty is in the light. Now he comes and he brings very expensive spices and linens to wrap the body of Jesus. The Jews did not embalm a body like the Egyptians did. They didn't burn them like the Romans did. Uh, they kept them intact and they would put spices on them. Uh, and the, the very practical reason they would cover them in spices is the body was going to start stinking pretty soon. And in order to keep the stench down, uh, they would cover them in spices and the, the linens. And here it, it appears that it was strips of linen. So if you've seen the stories about the shroud of Jesus, according to John, it wasn't a shroud. It was several different strips of linen. Anyway, so Nicodemus now comes out into the light and he shows his love for Jesus by spending a lot of money. We don't know exactly what this was worth, but it was a lot. If you look at the weight of the myrrh and the, and the spices here. Now in the place where he was crucified, we're told there was a garden. In the garden, a new tomb in which no one had been laid. Now why do you think John draws our attention to the fact that no one had been in this tomb? 
variety of reasons are possible, but of course we know what's coming next. We know what we're going to look at next week, Resurrection Day. There was no one else in this tomb. There's no room for any alternative explanations of what happened. When that tomb is empty, there was only one body that's ever been in that tomb. Everything is clear, uh, setting up for the resurrection next week. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid him there. And we talked about this last week. It's the uh, Friday night, why we call it Good Friday. And the Sabbath starts Friday evening at 6 o'clock. And time is running out for them to be prepared for the Sabbath. So they get the body and they quickly go put him in this tomb so they can get about the preparations for the Sabbath. And thankfully, this place was nearby. Last week, as we concluded, we, we talked about how the Spirit had been a witness of the coming of Christ through the prophets. He, the Spirit had led prophets along to write about the coming of Christ. And we looked at uh, a verse or two in Isaiah 53. But for the rest of our time this morning, I want to go back to Isaiah 53 and see how amazing it is that hundreds and hundreds of years prior to the coming of Jesus, God told us exactly what was going to happen to him. So open your Bible, turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53. This is a familiar passage. We read it a lot at communion. It is the clearest Old Testament scripture that describes the atoning work of Jesus and the death of Jesus. But now that we've been through John, now that we've observed the trial and how all of this came about, there are going to be some things that you will see here in this chapter that will pop out at you and you will realize there is no way the death of Jesus was an accident. There is no way it was anything other than the predetermined plan and purpose of God. Let's pick up in verse 6 of Isaiah 53. The prophet there says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. That's true. We know that's true in our own experience. We know that's true as we look out at every human being, even though the context here is the Jewish people. That's the us he's talking about. We know this is true of every people group. We've all gone astray from the things of God. We're all like sheep who wander off and get ourselves in trouble and don't stay near the shepherd. The bottom line is, what this is saying is we are all sinners, which is exactly what the, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now notice what centuries before Christ, Isaiah says, but the Lord, that's Yahweh, that's God the Father, has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. The question is, who's the him? Well, if we had gone back to where this whole section starts, back in actually Isaiah 52, we discover this whole thing is about the servant. It's the, uh, the servant song, as we call it. And this particular servant song is about the suffering servant, as it describes the suffering of the one who is coming. And here Isaiah says, the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on this servant. 
The death of Jesus on our behalf was no accident. This is God's doing. God put our iniquity on Jesus. And this was predicted hundreds of years before. Now describing the servant. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. Now, I've never been around sheep much, but I've seen the videos of someone taking those shears. And in our day, of course, they're electric. They're like electric razor, and they can take the wool right off the sheep, and the sheep just stand there, and they're pretty much um, unaffected by the whole thing. You, you wonder, do they feel the cold sensations, the change in temperature, the wind, that kind of thing? But they don't, they don't say anything. They don't do anything. They just stand there and, and take it. Sheep don't know when that shearing might be in preparation for slaughter. They don't know. And when you drag the sheep to the place where you're going to end their life, they don't cry out. They don't protest. They don't scream, no, no, don't do that to me. They just go. That's the imagery that the prophet gives us here. Jesus doesn't open his mouth. He doesn't say a word in protest. Now, of course, he did interact with Pilate. Pilate said, I have the authority to let you go. And Jesus says, yeah, no, <laughs> you would have no authority if not given to you by my father. He does, he does explain a few things along the way, but he doesn't protest. In fact, he says, when they come to arrest him, remember in the garden, when the, when the Jews came to arrest him along with the soldiers, he says, and, and Peter whipped out his sword and started swinging and he hit uh, Malchus's ear. Jesus said, put your sword away. This is what I've come to do. He didn't resist. He didn't try to get away. He didn't try to raise a rebellion. This is what he came for. And from that perspective, he didn't open his mouth. No re response at all. This was why he came. He knew. He was self-conscious of the fact that Yahweh, the Father, was going to put the iniquity of us all on him. And so he went without putting up a fight. That's what he came for. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. By oppression and judgment. It could be phrased by oppressive judgment. And again, we think about all the interaction that... Jesus had with the Jews and with Pilate three times. Remember, we've been over this three times. Pilate said, I find no guilt in this man. And the Jews constantly brought false charges, trying to come up with something that would stick so that they had warrant for Jesus' execution and they couldn't come up with anything because he hadn't done anything wrong. And yet the judgment was still brought on his head, crucify him, crucify him. Talk about oppressive judgment. There's never been a more innocent man who was falsely condemned than Jesus. And it was all predicted right here. Look at the next line in verse 8. And as for his generation, 
Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? Again, predicting what the reality was. He's taken out of the camp. Golgotha, the place of the skull, was outside of the city gates. The people all looked and said, he's a seditionist, he's a rebel, he's all the things the Pharisees say, he should die. The, writer, the, the prophet Isaiah here is saying, did his generation consider that he was cut off for the transgressions of God's people, the ones who should have been executed? No, they didn't consider that. They decided this was just until he was crucified. Remember, we saw this last week, too. There was a group of them, at least, who beat their breasts and said, what have we done? But until that moment, they just assumed this was God's justice on Jesus. Verse 9, now coming closer to John chapter 19. His grave was assigned with wicked men. To be crucified was the most humiliating way to die. It was also the most excruciating, most painful, but it was humiliating. It was for the worst of the worst criminals. And he's hanging up there in between two others who deserve to be there. And they were awful, wicked, evildoers. Jesus should have died and been buried with them. He should have hung there and let the vultures come and eat his flesh, according to the law. And he should have been finally taken down and thrown into that common grave with all the wicked men. Yet, he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. That's Joseph of Arimathea. Imagine. Hundreds of years beforehand, God says, no, no, we're not going to throw him into that common grave of wicked men because he hasn't actually done anything wrong. He's going to be buried with the wealthy. He's going to be buried as a blessed man. Joseph of Arimathea, no doubt he had no clue that he was the fulfillment of this prophecy. He goes to Pilate and says, can I have his body? And I want to put him in this tomb and use my wealth to give him a proper burial. Verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself a guilt offering. One of the things that's hard for us to understand, I think, is that this was, this was all part of the plan, and we know that, and Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, I give my life willingly, and, and we know when Jesus was in Gethsemane and he cried out to the Lord, uh, my father, let this cup pass from me, and sometimes I think, we think that this must have been hard for God. Sometimes we paint God as a father watching his son 
be crucified as though it really pains the father. And we even try to draw some comfort that, that the father watched his son be crushed here and, and he knows grief in that sense. And maybe there's some element of that that is true. But what we're told here is this was pleasing to the father. It pleased God to crush the son. Not from some sort of morbid, uh, sadistic flaw in his character, but because of what it would accomplish. This was the plan from before the foundation of the world. Both the father and the son knew that we were going to sin, that all of us were going to go astray. And as a just God, he must punish sin. The only hope of forgiveness for anyone is that someone else takes our punishment. And for that reason, it pleased the Lord to put Jesus on the cross. Not a glee, happy kind of pleasure, but pleased with Jesus' acceptance of the role and pleased that it would save us and pleased to display his glory and his grace through all of this. He was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering, which of course he did. He said, I lay down my life freely of my own will. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. All along, we knew death was not the end. On the other side of it, the good pleasure of the Lord will make Jesus, the servant, experience glory. We'll come back to that next week. Verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, now this is talking about the servant now, the servant who's going to prosper, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. That means that Jesus looks back on what he endured on the cross and he's satisfied with what he's done. He is pleased at having borne our iniquity. As many of you know, uh, my son has started writing and recording music and we've been releasing a few of those. And he puts a lot of work into, that, into those songs, a lot of hours writing and recording. And, and I've got a little role to play in that. And actually, the whole family has a little bit to play in that because we're constantly playing it and getting everyone to speak into it. Is this too loud? How does this sound? What do you think about this and that? And when we finally hit the button and publish it to the world, there's a collective, whew, we're done. But it's not like, Whew, finally we're done with that. It is a, we did it. It was worth all the work. Now the, the song is out there for others to hear, and it's finished. And there's a satisfaction when we're done. That's the kind of thing that this is talking about. Jesus, after his death, after all the pain, after hanging there and receiving the wrath of the Father on his own head, exhaled, breathed his last, and he was satisfied with his work. It was good. 
he is pleased. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, the Lord says, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death, was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many, and interceded for the transgressors, the just for the unjust. We started off talking about guilt by association and the logical fallacy of taking one member of a class and judging that person based on their association with another group. And that's wrong. In this case, Jesus really was guilty by association. He became one of us. He became a man, joined us in the human race. And though he did not sin, he was treated as though he had sinned. So that we who have sinned can be treated as though we are righteous. And it all pleased the Father, and it pleased the Son. So, Frack family, as we head into Holy Week, be filled with joy and hope and the assurance that Jesus was pleased to go to the cross and suffer the wrath that you deserve and that you are forgiven and that someday we will be with him and live forever. Let's pray. Father, we say thank you we rejoice in your grace and goodness. We acknowledge our sinfulness. And we acknowledge your atoning work on the cross on our behalf. And though we can't be together with each other now, and we can't be with you yet, one day we will all be together in your presence and live forever because it pleased the Father to crush you, because you were pleased to give yourself as an offering. For that we say thank you. Amen.